I'm Bonnie Harrison and welcome to The Detail's Long Read. This week it's Guilt Part 1, Murder in Pairoa by Ryan Wolfe. It's part of a series coming out in North and South magazine over the next few months. Speculation still swirls about the 2012 murder of pizza shop owner Jordan Vidori, a mystery that prompted Wolfe to launch his own investigation. The first part of the story is out now in North and South's July issue, featuring photos from Luke Harvey, with the next instalments to follow in August and September. Shortly, you'll hear Ryan reading his own story. As well as being a qualified lawyer, Ryan hosts a true crime podcast, Guilt, where he investigates some of New Zealand's most enduring unsolved criminal cases, including this one. This is Guilt Part 1, Murder in Pairoa. I meet Tatiana at a cafe. She says, My partner and I at the time, we were having, like, a huge argument till three or four o'clock in the morning. And he left at about quarter past seven, I think. And he rang me and said, I think something's wrong. He'd gone for a walk and had walked past Jordan's store on the main street and said, There's police officers everywhere. And he said, I think something's happened. There's a lot of cops at Jordan's workplace. And I had just gone to bed, and I was still in my pyjamas. And I called my mum and said, I need to go. I think something's happened to Jordan. Tatiana pauses and stares out the window of the cafe for a time, her eyes welling with tears before she turns back. She says, And I got in the car and drove the back road down past the domain. And I stopped on the corner where the funeral director's was, because there were cops there. And a cop called me over and said, I can't be here. So I got out of the van and walked down the street to the end of the road. And there he was, lying on the ground. It was a cold winter's morning. 18th of June, 2012, in Paidoa when Tatiana stood and saw her beloved boss and pizza shop owner lying dead, crumpled against a chain-link fence in a pool of blood, behind his iconic Mykonos pizza, murdered in cold blood by a single round from a .22 caliber rifle. It was a moment that would forever change the life of then 15-year-old Tatiana and a small, rural New Zealand town. Ten years later, despite an extensive police investigation, the case remains unsolved. In the vacuum of information, rumours have swirled as to who was responsible and why. Why kill Jordan Vidori? a popular member of the community, a larger-than-life Greek immigrant known for his generosity and vivacious character. It was a mystery that had always bothered me. Eventually, in September of 2021, I purchased recording equipment and launched what was to become my investigative podcast, Guilt. 
I set out not only to tell Vidori's story, but to revisit every element of this case, interview every witness I could find, with the goal of finally solving this mystery. It's a journey that has left an indelible mark on my own life, and I believe may finally have shone a light on who killed Vidori and why. We begin the story in my car on the streets of Paidoa as I nervously test my equipment. In a few minutes, I'll cross the street and walk into Arkwright's Antiques. But before I do that, it's important to get a sense of Paidoa the town and the man that was Jordan Vidori. In many ways, Arkwright's Antiques typifies the town itself. Quiet, but busy. Packed to the rafters with old, interesting things. Much like the store, Paidoa is a place that fills you with that warm feeling of nostalgia. But somewhere you don't stay long. You peruse what it has to offer, then continue on your way. It's a town local teacher, Darren, described to me as a nice quiet little place. But the gem of it is that it's only a hop, skip and a jump from Hamilton or Tauranga or Auckland. A neat little place to grow up where we spent our time fishing in the river, riding bikes around town, or playing cricket. When I speak to Paul Milner, Paidoa Ward councillor, who was born and bred in the area, he describes a town that considers itself to be the greatest little town in the middle of everywhere, that takes pride in its community spirit and general vibe. And of course, the many antiques shops. Some good, some great. Paidor has in fact become an antiques mecca. But in 2012, there was another feature of the main street other than pre-loved goods. The red and white tablecloths of Greek restaurant Mykonos. And more than likely sitting there with a coffee in his hand, it's vivacious, larger-than-life owner, Jordan Vidori. Milner describes a man who became entrenched in the community quickly after deciding on a chance passing through Paidoa that he would move here from Auckland and set up a pizza shop. He says he was bright, bubbly, he always had a yarn to tell people. He was the sort of guy that if somebody was in need, he'd offer them a plate of chips or a couple pieces of pizza and wouldn't ask anything for it. It's an opinion shared by Anne Harris, former town promoter, who I meet in the local 131 Tavern in Paidoa. Harris says the time of Vidori's murder was a period of her life that brings up a lot of suffering, and she's hesitant to speak to me. Back in 2012, Harris had helped put Paidoa on the map when it took out the award for New Zealand Community of the Year. Harris describes the town as really running on a high. Business was really picking up 
and it was getting known for its events. And indeed it was. Large, well-organised events, like the annual Paidoa street bike race, vintage and classic car show, and a food and wine festival, to name a few. But these good times weren't to last. First, the town was struck with a major scandal when a prominent businessman was outed as being involved in a child pornography ring. Then soon after, the town was rocked again by Vidori's murder. How much Vidori meant to this small community was made clear by the size of the crowd that attended his funeral. TV cameras were rolling as almost half the town turned out to pay their respects to the much-loved pizza man. Naturally, as you'd expect with an unsolved cold-blooded murder in a small town, rumours swirled. Harris recalls fingers being pointed in all directions. She says, There are all sorts of things, you know. Someone that had worked for him said that he wasn't in a good space that night and seemed a bit frightened. Vidori had a much bigger life than we all realised, and it could have come from any of them. Over the last decade, there are no people more frustrated and confused by the lack of an arrest than Vidori's brothers Christos and Nico Vidori. When I heard back from Christos that he would like to speak to me, I felt for the first time the weight of what I was doing. I was digging up old memories, painful ones, and asking people to speak about them. Like Jordan, Christos is a larger-than-life character and speaks with a heavy Greek accent. He describes a difficult childhood, one mainly spent on the streets and in orphanages after the death of their mother at a young age. Eventually finding love when he met his Kiwi wife Heather on her OE, Christos followed her back to New Zealand where he opened up a pizza shop in Auckland. Once he was established, he tells me that it was this that prompted him to go back to Greece for his brothers, to give them a better life than they had in Greece. The brothers were close. Just a couple days before Vidori's murder, the three of them shared some shots of Uzo, as Greeks like to do. He tells me that theories about Vidori's murder being due to a gambling debt are rubbish. He only plays small bets. His biggest vices were trade me, where he loved to buy and sell pretty much anything. And his generous spirit. Christos laughs when he remembers that Vidori was constantly giving away food. And as a result, was never making any money. He's frustrated that the case remains unsolved and tells me that in Greece the murder would have been solved. His wife Heather, who was listening on the speakerphone, tells me that in her mind, whoever did this knew what they were doing. The front of the shop was closed. No money was taken. And that according to her, Vidori's body had knife cuts on his arms. 
the undertaker had requested a long-sleeved shirt for the funeral. This could be important. We'll cover all the details surrounding Vidori's murder soon, but the only injury the police ever mentioned publicly was a single gunshot wound caused by a .22 calibre round. Christos tells me that aside from twice in the immediate days after Vidori's murder, no police have ever contacted his side of the family to provide any update on the case. He becomes emotional when I ask him what he would say to anyone involved that might be listening, saying, don't take this guilt with you. Tell the people. Because some part of the family, they want to know why. You can't let it go like this. What's the reason? What's the purpose? Nobody knows, man. Nobody knows. Who saw the body? Let's rewind back to me nervously sitting in my car, across the road from Arkwright's Antiques, about to use my recording equipment for the first time. I'm not a journalist. I've never investigated anything in my life. But I am a qualified lawyer, which hopefully will come in handy in a story like this. Viv Leonard is the owner of Arkwright's, the oldest antique store in town, which sits next door to Jordan Vidori's pizza restaurant Mykonos. Over the years, Leonard has been very outspoken about Vidori's murder and has become a town pinboard of sorts. People stop by and pass on information, things they've heard, different theories, rumours, facts, and she diligently keeps a mental track. This has rubbed a few people up the wrong way, rightly or wrongly, believing she's spreading misinformation and that she should just let it go. The bell rings as I walk into her store. Immediately, I'm hit with that familiar aroma of old furniture, and the sight of thousands of antiques of all shapes and sizes. Unlike some stores that have popped up in town over the years in Piedor, Arkwright's is well known for its quality items. I've been in here before, many years ago, and only out of curiosity. But today, I come with a different purpose in mind. I don't really have a plan, so when I see who I assume is Leonard standing behind the counter, I approach, microphone in hand, and ask, You don't happen to be Viv Leonard, do you? Yes, I am, she says. She's in her 60s, with silver hair and a frank, friendly manner. When I tell her I'm making a podcast investigating the murder of Jordan Vidori, she smiles and tells me about the memorial garden she built at the site of his discovery behind her store. Leonard remembers Vidori fondly, telling me she used to call him her guard dog because he caught burglars. He'd hear them because he lived here, kicking in my door, 
and he'd come out and scare them. He'd say, get away, you bastards. As is standard police procedure in the event of a murder like this, certain facts get held back from the public to begin with. And Leonard describes the confusion amongst the community. She says, We were led to believe he had been shot in the back of the head, so it was like an execution drug thing. It wasn't until many years later, when the case was on the TV show Cold Case, that the police highlighted the fact Vidori had been actually shot in the arm, the bullet then ricocheting into his chest. Leonard describes this discovery as a relief for locals. Could his murder have been accidental? Without skipping a beat, she tells me that there was something interesting. Behind Vidori's pizza shop, he kept two large chest freezers. And according to Leonard, these freezers had been robbed at least once in the months leading up to his murder. At any one time, there could be hundreds of dollars of meat in these freezers. Could Vidori have heard thieves breaking into his freezers that night and confronted them? It seemed a bit of a stretch to me to believe freezer thieves would carry a loaded gun. Later, I managed to find a reliable source. Someone who had worked with Vidori who did not wish to be named. They told me they weren't sure if he reported these robberies to the police. And when I asked whether Vidori would be the kind of person that would confront thieves. The answer was definitely. In virtually any unsolved murder case, sooner or later, people are going to speculate that drugs and gangs are involved. And this case is no different. I want to make clear that in my investigation of this case, I found no evidence of this. And Leonard reiterated this telling me he was vehemently opposed to drugs. She then went on to tell me about a new out-of-town employee who, quote, had come down from Auckland to help Vidori. Apparently he had gotten mixed up with the triads. And then there was a lady that went in for dinner that night and said Vidori was not himself. But what she told me next made my hair stand on end. Six years after Vidori's murder, a large cover story ran in the local paper about the case, featuring Leonard on the cover. Shortly after this, a man walked into her store and told her he knew who killed Vidori. She says, he said it was his nephew, and he's dead now, so just lay off and forget about it. I pressed her for the man's name, and although she says she knows it, she made it clear she wasn't going to say any more. I step out of Leonard's store and make my way the short distance down Hall Street where I find a plaque above a small, well-tended garden. It reads, In memory of Jordan Vidori, 23-6-1956-18-6-2006. to 
2012. Our Pizza Man. Beyond this, I find a back access area for Leonard's store and the building that once housed Mykonos Pizza. It was destroyed by fire in 2019. It seems a sad place for a person to spend their final moments on a cold, dark winter's morning. Today, as at the time, a large gate blocks entry into the former rear entrance of Mykonos, and next to it, on the right, is the entrance to another antique store, one which will become central to this case, Rusty's, owned, at the time, by Linda Hunter. On the night of Vidori's murder, according to all reports, it was Hunter who discovered Vidori's body and phoned the police. But there are questions around this sequence of events. In particular, an unexplained two-hour delay between the discovery and the phone call. When I track Hunter down by phone, she is no longer living in Paidoa, having sold her shop and moved south to another rural New Zealand town. She's surprised to hear from me, and I'm trying to walk a tightrope of asking the right questions and not getting hung up on. I tell her my goal is to remove the rumour and speculation, and she agrees to speak to me. She tells me her memory is hazy because of the, quote, shock over the whole thing. But that she had stayed in the flat at the back of her shop that night. She woke up around 4.30am because her friend was staying and he had to leave for work early. As she waved him goodbye from the front of her shop, he pulled over and told her that, quote, there's a body at the gate before leaving for work. It's at this point where the timeline of events gets hazy. According to Linda, she then called her ex-partner, a former detective known as Dick. But this call wasn't actually made until approximately 6am, almost two hours after the discovery. So why the delay? I asked Linda, and she told me that she was, quote, sitting there thinking, well, what should I do? Shall I ring or go out and have a look? But I didn't want to go out there. When I asked why she wouldn't just call 111 immediately, her response was, because her friend was staying, and she'd just separated from Dick, and, well, she felt guilty. And this caused the delay. Eventually, when she did call someone, she called Dick. And within about 10 minutes of that call, heard the sound of sirens as the ambulance arrived. Naturally, all of this is beginning to ring alarm bells for me. At the time of the discovery, for all Hunter knew, this person may yet have been alive. So to not call emergency services immediately, regardless of your personal situation, seems beyond my comprehension. But if I was already struggling to understand her reasoning, I'm shocked by the next thing she has to say. 
She says, that's when I lied to the police. I just lied. And you know, didn't say that he'd stayed the night. My mind races. Who is this friend that found Vidori's body? Why would he leave the scene? And is this information known to police? My attempts to track down Dick resulted in the sad information that he had passed away from cancer in April 2020. But I spoke to Alex Quinn, who was his long-time employer, after Dick left the police. He told me he never knew Dick to be anything other than honest and hard-working, even if he didn't mind the occasional joint. Alex recalled that Dick confided his concerns to him that, quote, the police have got to find someone, and it looks like they're trying to find me because they can't find anyone else. The police never did give up pursuing Dick. Apparently, not able to satisfy themselves 100% that he wasn't involved with Jordan Vidori's murder. I was told by a reliable source that in Dick's final days, police visited him, hoping to elicit a confession, but that Dick remained adamant to the end that he was an innocent man. Right now, there's one thing clear to me. I need to speak to Hunter's friend who stayed that night and was apparently the first to find Vidori's body. Why would he leave the scene? And more importantly, is this information known to the police? When I do manage to get him on the phone, his response is not what I was expecting. When I ask if he minds answering a couple of questions about the morning of 18th June 2012, he seems completely thrown that I'd tracked him down. His name has never been connected in any way to Vidori's murder. He says to me, No, that's a long time ago. Who are you? Are you a detective or anything? I tell him, I'm making a podcast. And he says, No. F*** off. This concludes part one of this series for North and South. This is a highly condensed version of my podcast, Guilt, in which I investigate unsolved New Zealand cases. In season one, I investigated the murder of Jordan Vidori. You'll find this podcast by searching Guilt on all good podcast platforms. That was Ryan Wolf reading his story, Guilt, Part 1, Murder in Paeroa, from North and South Magazine's July issue. Parts 2 and 3 can be found in the August and September editions. The Details Long Read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with another long read. Ka kite anō.